I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, uh, John chapter 17 for our time of study in the Word today. Uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study uh, this morning, we come to John chapter 17 uh, and verse 1, and my goal uh, today is to cover verses 1 through 10 And the title of the message this morning is A Prayer Full of Glory. A Prayer Full of Glory. Even in the 10 verses we're going to be looking at today, I think there's six different uh, references or mentions of the root word for glory just in these uh, 10 verses. This is a prayer indeed full of glory. Today we come to the longest prayer of Jesus ever recorded in the gospel accounts, and it's a prayer that was prayed at the culmination of his ministry on the evening uh, before his death on the cross. As we study John 17, you're going to find that this prayer glistens with the very glory of God himself, and for this reason, some writers have referred to John 17 as the holy of holies of Scripture, the inner sanctum of the very heart of Jesus Christ himself. I know as we come into the text this morning and as we begin to study John 17, it can seem shallow and narcissistic in the minds of some to look for yourself in the text of the Bible But if you are doing that, as you read through John 17, you can actually find yourself in Jesus' prayer if you are a believer in him. And you would find yourself in verse 20 where Jesus says to his his father, I do not ask on behalf of these disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So if you have come to believe in Jesus through the ministry or the testimony of his disciples, then you are included in the group that Jesus is praying for in this chapter. And this ought to excite you. We all know the blessing of being prayed for, and we get that blessing of being prayed for by Jesus here in John 17, and that ought to have a huge impact on our hearts. Robert Murray McShane once said, and I quote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear 10,000 enemies who come against me. Nevertheless, distance makes no difference He ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, in John 17, we get to hear Jesus pray a prayer that includes some prayer requests that he gives to the Father on our behalf, and even more so for his 11 disciples who are with him in this moment, and they're listening in and hearing Jesus pray for them. And boy, do these disciples need to hear Jesus praying for them because of the 10,000 enemies that are about to come against them. 
Jesus prays this prayer on this night because he needed to talk to his father. He also prays this prayer because he knew his disciples needed him to pray for them. And he also knew that they needed to hear him pray for them. As we have seen in recent months, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his death and for the glories to follow. He has washed their feet. He has taught them many things in chapters 13 through 16. He has listened to their questions and he has answered them and even answered questions they were afraid to ask. But now he engages in one final act. And that final act is prayer. And this morning, we're going to observe, if you have the sermon notes with you, uh, five movements of Jesus in the beginning verses of his prayer that is full of glory. Five movements in verses 1 through 10 of Jesus in this prayer that is full of glory. And the first movement that we see, you can fill in the blank, is he pursues his and his father's glorification through the giving of eternal life. He requests or he pursues, he insists upon his and his father's glorification through the giving of eternal life. Observe what happens in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things that he's been saying in chapter 16 and prior, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's hard to observe Jesus here lifting up his eyes to heaven and not be reminded of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, who was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven because he was so plagued with guilt over his sins. But Jesus evidently has no trouble lifting his eyes to heaven to speak freely with his father because he is sinless in every way. As Jesus begins his prayer, observe what he says, Father, Father, he begins, speaking as a son, the son, calling upon his father, revealing his recognition of the father as the one who provides for him and who directs him in all things and who loves him with the affection of a father for a son. And Jesus says here, Father, the hour has come. Throughout this gospel, as we've studied it over the last couple years, we have come to several moments in the narrative where we were told that Jesus' hour or Jesus' time had not yet come, right? And the hour or time being spoken of was the hour of his suffering and the glories to follow. But now Jesus says the hour has come. And what an hour this will prove to be. This is not just the hour that the narrative of the Gospel of John has been leading toward. This is the hour that all of human history for thousands of years has been leading toward. 
when Jesus will be crucified upon a cross for our sins and then raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. And with this hour having come, what does Jesus in this moment want more than anything? Does he want to escape from this hour, from the suffering of this hour? No, he wants his father to be glorified through this hour of his suffering. Look at his petition in the second half of verse 1 where he says to the Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There are two ways that I think Jesus is asking for the Father to glorify him here. The first way you give glory to a glorious being is that you manifest, you reveal, you expose the glory that that being possesses, and this will happen at the cross, where the glory of Jesus' person and character will be revealed in all of its splendor of goodness and sacrificial love. It is at the cross where the beautiful goodness of the heart of Jesus is revealed in its ultimate expression, and it is because of the cross that the astonishing goodness of his character will be celebrated forever thereafter. The second layer of glorification that Jesus is asking for is that the Father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead and elevate him to glory at the Father's own right hand with all that that entails. Jesus is asking for the Father to glorify him in both of these ways, both through his death and then beyond his death and the glories to follow. Now notice in this verse that Jesus doesn't seek to glorify himself. Instead, he's trusting the Father to glorify him. For it is glory from his Father that Jesus evidently wants more than anything. In asking the Father to glorify him, Jesus is honoring the Father as the one from whom glory really matters, right? The world is going to be hating on Jesus in the hours to come and treating him as a criminal and dishonoring him in every way possible. And Jesus, it seems, can handle all of that so long as it is the Father who glorifies him. Now, why does Jesus ask for this glory from the Father? Look again at verse 1. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' highest ambition was that the Father be glorified, and he's only asking the Father to glorify him as a means to the greater end that he, Jesus, might be able to glorify the Father. Jesus' goal was to put the Father's goodness and greatness on clear display for all the world to see and to enhance the Father's reputation for being a good and loving and just and powerful and gracious Father who is worthy of our highest trust 
in a way that would redound to the eternal praise of his Father. This mutual glorifying of Jesus and the Father that Jesus is seeking here is tied to something. And that is, as we'll see, the gift or the giving of the gift of eternal life to all whom the Father has given to Jesus to save. Observe what Jesus says at the end of verse 1 and then end of verse 2. Speaking to his Father, he says, Glorify your Son so that he may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. We know that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he spoke in Matthew 28 about how all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. But there is also a sense in which even prior to his incarnation, the father granted Jesus authority over all flesh, all human flesh. And this authority embodied the right for Jesus to save those whom the father gave to him and the authority to be the judge of those who would refuse salvation. Speaking of those whom the Father has chosen to save, notice at the end of verse 2 where Jesus says that the Father granted him this authority over all humanity that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and rebelled against God and have turned to their own way. According to Romans 1, there are many whom the Father righteously hands over to the evil of their own hearts. That's what we all deserve. But there are some whom God in his mercy has chosen to save through no merit of their own. And he gave such ones as gifts to his son, which is amazing. Instead of handing these ones over to the lust of their own heart, he hands them over to Jesus. Aren't you grateful? Thankfully, Jesus, upon receiving these ones, does not intend to waste a single soul that the father has given him to save. Jesus says in verse two, that to all, and you can underline that word all, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus evidently is not content to give eternal life to 90% of those whom the father has given to him, nor is he content to give eternal life to 99.999% of those whom the Father has given to him. Jesus intends to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him, such that not a one of them will be left without this gift of eternal life, which, by the way, can never be lost even once it's given. If it could be, it wouldn't be eternal life, right? The expression eternal life speaks of life as opposed to death. Apart from Christ, we're in a state of death. 
which means separation from God and on our way to hell where we will be forever separated from the loving presence of God. This is what we all deserve for our sins. But Jesus will surrender his life upon a cross in this hour that he is arriving at right now in order to give the gift of eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him to save. And eternal life is so much more than just living forever. Jesus teaches us this in verse 3. Observe what he says to his father in verse 3. And by the way, he says this for our benefit. His father did not need this reminder. This is for our benefit because he knows there are listening ears to this prayer. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word translated know here that Jesus uses here includes an intellectual knowledge of the truth about God the Father and about God the Son. But this word also means to have a relationship with someone such that you know them experientially in the context of a relationship. So in the mind of Jesus, eternal life is intimate relationship with God the Father and God the Son in a relationship that is characterized by mutual love and commitment. It is a relationship in which we are loving God and experiencing being loved by him in a way that inspires our love for him. And according to Jesus' words here, eternal life entails the blessing of not just knowing whatever deity one chooses to create inside their own heads. It entails the privilege of knowing, look at the text, the only true God. In other words, the God who actually is. The God who is the only real God. And the God who, being real, is true and faithful in every way. And eternal life is also intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent, according to verse 3. Eternal life entails the privilege of relating to both the Father and the Son 24-7. The privilege of having God as your Father and having Jesus as your brother and Lord and Messiah and Savior and best friend. Eternal life entails the privilege of walking in the love of the Father and the Son for you. As their love is mediated to you through the Holy Spirit. It is that relationship which saves and transforms a person's life. And it has changed so many of us in this room. We all know the power of a human relationship, right? To change our lives. But this relationship that Jesus is talking about is infinitely more wonderful and greater And what Jesus says here should foster a humble gratefulness in all of us who believe in Jesus. It should not foster arrogance in us. According to Jesus' words here, this kind of eternal life 
of relationship with God the Father and God the Son is not something that we attain to. It's not something that we earn. It's something that's given as a gift of the grace of Jesus to all those whom the Father has given to him. Well, Jesus has communicated his petition that the Father be glorified through the Son, giving eternal life through his death upon the cross to all those whom the Father has given to him. And it just so happens that this petition is perfectly in harmony with the way that Jesus lived his life upon the earth. And this leads us to the second movement that Jesus makes here in the beginning verses of his prayer that is full of glory. Number two, he declares his completed mission of glorifying the Father through his earthly ministry. Observe what Jesus says in verse four. Speaking to his Father, he says, I glorified you on the earth. Glorifying his Father is what Jesus was all about in everything that he did every miracle that he performed, everything that Jesus taught, every prayer he prayed, every journey he went on, every word he spoke, everything he ever did, his goal was to glorify the Father. Whether Jesus ate or drank or whatever he did, he always did all things to the glory of the Father. And this was not just his goal, he succeeded in this goal. And now here Jesus is at the end of his life and ministry saying to his father, without any reservation, I glorified you on the earth. None of us can say this like Jesus can, right? Because as the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of of God. And even since being saved, all of us, including myself, have stumbled in so many ways and fallen short of giving God the glory that he deserves from our lives. But Jesus succeeded where we failed, such that he can right now look back on the entirety of his life and his ministry and say to his father, I glorified you on the earth. How did he glorify his father? He says in verse four, look at the text, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Notice how Jesus calls what the father has given him to do the work, which is singular. Jesus did many works throughout his life and ministry, but he views all of those works as a part of a single work. And that single work was to reveal the Father and to fulfill the law so perfectly that he can now offer himself up upon the cross as a spotless lamb who will die to bring salvation to all those who believe in him and give them the gift of eternal life. This is the work Jesus has accomplished. In fact, some of the works that Jesus has done, as we have seen through the gospel of John, 
are the very things that have ushered him to this particular moment of being arrested in the very next chapter and then crucified because many of the works that Jesus did provoke the religious leaders to such rage that they are now resolved to kill him. But even though Jesus knew in advance how provocative these works that the father is giving him to do would end up being, Jesus was faithful to do this work so thoroughly that he can now say to his father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now he is about to put an exclamation point on that work by going to the cross. But as Jesus looks to his death on the very next day, he doesn't just see the cross, he sees beyond the cross. He sees through the cross to the glory that will follow as he is reunited with his precious father. And this leads us to the third movement that Jesus makes here in the beginning verses of this prayer that is so full of glory. Number three, he petitions the father to restore him to his former glory together with the father. I know that's a mouthful, but what Jesus says here is truly a mouthful and a heartful. He petitions the father to restore him to his former glory together with the father. Observe the words that Jesus speaks to his father in verse five, saying, now, father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus language here reminds us that he existed prior to his incarnation and that he was with the father in heaven in that prior existence. In John 1, 1, the apostle John himself tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was what? With God, literally toward God, facing toward God in intimate communion. Yet in John's gospel, we're told that God the father sent his son from heaven to earth into the world. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of the condescension of Jesus in coming into the world and becoming a man like us. This condescension doesn't mean that there was a lessening of Jesus' glory when he was on earth, but simply that there was a veiling of certain aspects of his glory so that other aspects of his glory could be more clearly revealed in his condescension. But the glory of his togetherness with the father in heaven is what Jesus is now requesting be restored. For now here, Jesus is saying to his father, and I want you to notice, let's read this again. And I want you to notice the language of relationship here. He says, now father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the mind of Jesus, his greatest glory 
was his togetherness with the Father. If you came to Jesus and said, show me your glory, show me your greatest glory, Jesus would not say, here, watch my skin glow. He wouldn't say that. He would say, my greatest glory is my relationship of mutual love with my Father and being together with him. And here Jesus is praying for the Father to restore him to this former glory in heaven that he had together with the Father before the creation of the world when he was with the Father in heaven, facing toward the Father in intimate and sweet communion. And I want us to note that this togetherness of the Father with his Son is not just Jesus' greatest glory, it is the Father's greatest glory too. Which means that for the Father to return Jesus to his former state of heavenly togetherness would amount to the Father glorifying himself, which is why Jesus says, glorify me together with yourself. To glorify Jesus in this way would be to, as the Father and to highlight his greatest glory. Jesus longs for this restoration of heavenly togetherness with his Father and he looks forward to glorifying his father from that heavenly position of togetherness with the father. Yes, in being restored to this position beyond the cross, being in heaven with his father, Jesus would enjoy the beautiful surroundings and the perfections of heaven and would have the blessings of being worshipped by myriads of angels without end, but in the mind of Jesus, the greatest blessing of that restored glory would be simply being back together with his father in the father's embrace, which is why the apostle John describes Jesus in John 1.18 as now at the present time being in the bosom of the father, in the embrace of the father. And as we contemplate what we've just covered in the text, I want us to note how what Jesus is asking for here, for the Father to restore to him, is perfectly consistent with what Jesus' whole life and whole ministry was all about. Jesus has just prayed for a restoration to a state of glorious togetherness with his Father in heaven but in the meantime, Jesus has lived that togetherness with the Father to the highest degree possible on earth. And this leads us to the fourth movement that Jesus makes here in the beginning verses of this prayer that is so full of glory. Number four, he reviews his work of persuading the disciples of his glorious togetherness with the Father. He reviews his work of persuading the disciples of his glorious togetherness with the Father. Observe what Jesus says in verse 6 
And notice his focus on his father and their present togetherness. Speaking to the father about his disciples, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So the father gives Jesus these men from out of the world. And what does Jesus do with these men? He manifests the father's name to them. Saying to them, basically, let me show you my father. In revealing the father's name to them, Jesus is saying that he revealed the essence of his father's character and goodness to them. In other words, he revealed the father's glory to them. And about these disciples, Jesus says to the father in verse six, they were yours and you gave them to me. So even though Jesus is not right now in heaven to enjoy his former state of glory with his father, he's relishing the mutual sharing and the teamwork that he has gotten to engage in with the father while he was on earth. The disciples of Jesus belong to the father and the father gave them to Jesus and Jesus has received them as gifts from his father and then occupies himself with doing what? Revealing the father's name to them. And the result of Jesus revealing the father's name or the father's glory to them is that as Jesus says to the father at the end of verse six, they have kept your word. In other words, the father's word that has come to them through Jesus Every word Jesus ever spoke to his disciples is a word that he received from his father to give to them. And Jesus tells the father about his disciples. They have kept your word singular. In other words, they have treasured your gospel word of salvation through me. And they have sought to live and believe accordingly. Back in chapter six, when many people, you'll recall, stopped following Jesus because of some of the hard things that he was saying, Jesus looked at his disciples and asked them, are you going to are you going to leave me also? And how did Peter respond? Peter said, to whom shall we go, Lord? For you have the words of what? Eternal life. As much as these disciples have stumbled along in their understanding, as cloudy as their thinking has been on this very Thursday night, at least they are with Jesus and not with someone else. They are with Jesus because they believe that he is the one who speaks the words of eternal life. Yes, they're still plagued by doubts and misunderstandings and plagued by fears, but it is for these very reasons that they dare not let themselves be anywhere else on the planet than right by Jesus' side, with Jesus on this very night and clinging 
to his every word. And as a result of their keeping of his word, they have come to know and believe certain things. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus speaks of his disciples and says, and again, I want you to notice all the you and me language that Jesus uses here as he talks to the Father about his disciples. He says, verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they receive them and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. These are wonderfully affirming words that Jesus is speaking about his disciples that must have blessed them to hear in this moment. But do you see this togetherness between the Son and the Father here in these verses? A togetherness that Jesus has been able to demonstrate and persuade his disciples of. According to Jesus' words here, these disciples have come to know that everything that the Father has given to Jesus is truly from the Father. They have received the words of Jesus that he has spoken to them as the very words of the Father. They truly understand that Jesus came forth from the Father. And according to Jesus here, they have believed that the Father sent Jesus. And they have come to know and believe these things because Jesus has, by his life and teaching, persuaded them of how thoroughly together Jesus and the Father really are on every level, even now with Jesus on earth. And that togetherness between Jesus and his Father served as the wholesome fountain from which these disciples drank. Jesus was not, you've heard of child-centered parents. Jesus was not a disciple-centered savior. He was a father-centered savior. And his disciples got caught up in the orbit of the beauty of that relationship and togetherness between Jesus and his father. So to keep the flow of Jesus' prayer in perspective, in verse 5, Jesus is asking for the father to restore him to the glory of togetherness that he once enjoyed with the father before the creation of the world. Yet here we're learning that Jesus lived his life on earth, manifesting the glory of, of his present togetherness with the Father in a way that proved profoundly persuasive to his disciples, meaning that there was a seamlessness to the way that Jesus prayed and lived his life. Jesus lived the way he prayed, and he prayed the way he lived. And we see that on display in this passage Observe what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10. And once again, notice the language of current togetherness between him and his father, which the disciples get wrapped up in. Speaking to his father about his disciples, Jesus says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf, 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. In saying, by the way, that he does not ask on behalf of the world right now, he's not saying he doesn't care about the world. What he's saying is that his focus is not right now in this moment of his prayer on the world, but on this small band of disciples who are with him. And Jesus is petitioning the Father on their behalf right now because it is this very band of disciples that is going to end up making such a difference in the world as Jesus sends them out into the world in the days to come. But notice how Jesus refers to his disciples in verse 9 as those whom you have given me. But then immediately he says, for they are yours and All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. When people of the world say mine, they're usually selfishly clutching onto something and holding it away from others. But when Jesus grabs his disciples here and calls them mine, he's holding them out to his father, and he's saying, what's mine is yours. Jesus owns nothing in isolation from his father. Everything the father gives to Jesus, Jesus gives it right back to the father and says, yours. Everything that belongs to the one is shared with the other between father and son. This is the way it should be with all that God gives to us, right? For all that God gives to us, we should view it as his and surrender it to him. For as C.S. Lewis says, nothing that you have not given away will ever truly be yours. And we see that this is true within the Trinity as well. In the Father's case, Jesus' disciples were all the more fully the fathers, because he had given them to Jesus. And as for Jesus, his disciples were all the more fully his because he viewed them as belonging to the Father. And for this very reason, Jesus cherishes these men and celebrates them at the end of verse 10. And this brings us to the fifth movement of Jesus in these beginning verses of his prayer that is so full of glory. Number five, he declares that he has been glorified in his disciples. He declares that he has been glorified in his disciples. At the very end of verse 10, Jesus makes an amazing statement. And there are actually scholars Critics of the Bible who say there's no way Jesus said these words. No way. This was written decades later by someone who saw what the disciples became and they put these words in Jesus' mouth. There's no way Jesus would say this about these men right now. But you and I trust the Holy Scriptures and Jesus actually said these words and listen to the amazing thing he says. He speaks of his disciples in their current state 
and says, I have been glorified in them. How crazy it is that Jesus could look at these, this ragtag group of disciples in their current state and say, I have been glorified in them. Seriously? This is a motley bunch, including a former tax collector, some fishermen, a former revolutionary, a doubter like Thomas, a slow learner like Philip, and a hothead like Peter. Some other would-be Messiah would have chosen different men to glorify himself. Some would-be Messiahs might have glorified themselves by rejecting these men and saying, get away from me. But Jesus sees that these are the men, the broken men whom the Father has given to him and he has received them with open arms and loved them and poured his life into them and he has already produced enough fruit in them that he can now say to the Father in their hearing, I have been glorified in them. What grace and how Encouraging it must have been for these disciples to hear Jesus speak to his father in this way about them. And if Jesus, guys, can speak this way about these men who earlier this evening were arguing about which of them is the greatest in God's kingdom. If Jesus could speak this way about these men who are about to abandon him. In his hour of need, if Jesus could speak this way about Peter, who is going to deny him three times this very night, then you ought to know that Jesus can speak this way about you. Even though you are so far from what you ought to be. As Ramsey Michaels, the commentator says, And I quote, these disciples, whatever their shortcomings, are his pride and joy, unquote. And you can feel that in Jesus' words here. In fact, think of these men as Jesus' little care group, whom the Father has sent to him and given to him. And Jesus didn't reject these men And ask the father to send him a better group of men. Send me a better care group. Nor does Jesus roll his eyes and sigh in this moment and say here in this prayer, Oh Lord, what a mess these men are. I sure hope one day I will be glorified in them. Nor did Jesus take this opportunity of prayer to complain to the father about these men about their cloudy judgment on this very night and about their arguments amongst themselves on this very night and about what slow learners they are. He could have done that. He doesn't complain to the father about these men. No, he celebrates them. And in the process, Jesus sets, I think, a great example for us showing us how to love the imperfect fellow Christians that God gives to us. 
rather than being put off by the fact that these imperfect fellow Christians fall so far short of our ideals, our wonderful ideals. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this very thing and he warns Christians and church leaders against loving their own idealized vision of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself. He says, and I quote, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself, such ones become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, unquote. He goes on to um, deliver a huge and lengthy if-then statement that has two ifs followed by a then. See if you can track with him here. He says, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian community in which we have been placed. Even when there are no great experiences, no noticeable riches, but much weakness, difficulty, and little faith. And if, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so miserable and so insignificant and does not at all live up to our expectations, then we hinder God from letting our community grow according to the measure and the riches that are there for us in Christ Jesus, unquote. Well, Jesus cherished the men that the father had given to him. And he takes this opportunity in prayer to celebrate his disciples and to say to the father in their hearing, I have been glorified in them. Beyond this statement at the end of verse 10, Jesus has affirmed so much about his disciples already just in the first 10 verses. For example, there's a lot that these disciples don't yet know, but Jesus speaks to the father about what they do know in verse 7. There's a lot these disciples do not yet believe as they Ought, but Jesus speaks about what they do believe in verse 8. There are many ways that these disciples have not perfectly kept the word of the Father as it has come to them through Jesus, but Jesus chooses to speak about the ways that they have kept the Father's word in verse 6. There are many ways that these disciples do not yet glorify Jesus as they will in future days. But Jesus here in verse 10 is cherishing how they have glorified him thus far. And in speaking this way, Jesus isn't just describing the genuine good that he has wrought in these men thus far. He's also fanning the flames of that good with encouragement. As one writer says, these words of Jesus are themselves an operation of divine grace, 
transforming the shaky faith of the disciples into something firm and lasting. We're going to stop here for today, but let's appreciate a few things as we close. What we see in this early section of Jesus' prayer, once again, is how seamlessly Jesus' prayers wove together with his life. Jesus' prayer here is truly nothing more than a powerful echo of his life. For what he prays for is exactly what his life and his ministry were all about. And may God help us to be the kind of Christians who, like Jesus, live the way we pray and who pray the way we live for the glory of God the Father and God the Son. And let's appreciate also the fact that Jesus himself felt the need to pray. This is the perfect son of God come from heaven to earth. And he felt the need to pray. And if Jesus felt that need to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? How much more should we feel the depth of our need to pray? And let's appreciate the fact that Jesus felt that his disciples would be profited by hearing him pray for them. So think about how the people in your life would profit from not only you praying for them, but even praying with them in their presence so that they can hear you pray for them. Charles Spurgeon spoke about how powerful it was to hear his mother's prayers over him when he was but a boy. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, talked about how his father would gather him under his arm on many occasions and pray over him when he was a boy. Charles Spurgeon's wife spoke after Spurgeon's death about what it was like to hear Spurgeon pray in her presence. And she said after he died that the thing she missed the most was not his preaching, but his prayers. And may that be said of you by the people in your life, that one of the things they appreciated most from you was hearing your prayers for them as you called down the blessing of heaven upon them. And along those lines, let's appreciate the fact that as Jesus prays for his disciples, he says so many encouraging and affirming things about them in the presence of his father. Think about what the disciples have heard Jesus say about them. He says they have kept his word. He says they know the truth about him and his father. He says they believe that the Father sent him. He says that the Father has given them to him. And he says that he himself has been glorified in them. Again, what must it have been like for these disciples to hear Jesus speaking this way about them as he prays? Let's remember, guys, that Jesus didn't shy away from pointing out the faults 
in these men. He has told them, even this evening, that they're all going to fall away from him this very night. He's told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He's rebuked them on a number of occasions. But my point is that Jesus never let the brokenness in these men blind him to the goodness that he had wrought in them. And he didn't let their present brokenness keep him from celebrating them in prayer before his father. Let us realize that as Jesus intercedes for us before the father, he does the same thing. On our behalf, seeing and celebrating and cherishing the good he has wrought in us, even when we don't see it in ourselves amid all the brokenness, he does. And we would be astounded if we could but hear him interceding for us with his father and celebrating the brushstrokes of his beautiful artistry in our lives. And being loved by Jesus in this way, guys, let's realize the power of celebrating the genuine good that's in our imperfect brothers and sisters and spouses and children as we do life with them and pray for them and pray with them in their presence. And finally, can we appreciate what an irresistibly beautiful Savior Jesus is? If you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, don't you want a Savior who prays for you and who loves you like Jesus is praying for and loving his disciples here in this passage Don't you want a savior who loves you so much that he was willing to lay down his life at the cross so that he might give to you eternal life and forgive you of your sins and transform you into something beautiful if you would but believe in him? A savior who, upon saving you, will see with an all-seeing eye your continued weaknesses and failings, yet who will also see the blossoming buds of his goodness in you. And he will celebrate those blossomings of good that he is producing in you before his father. If you have never entered into such a relationship with Jesus, I plead with you to come to him today. Believe in him. Call upon his name. I promise you this morning that you have never had a relationship with someone so good-hearted and so loving and so powerful as Jesus. And don't let your sins keep you from Jesus. Let your sins be the very reason that you come running to Jesus this morning. He came into the world to save sinners just like you. And if you do come to him in faith today, as you come to him, I promise you that Jesus won't just see you. He will see his father who is bringing you to him as a gift. And Jesus will receive you as a gift from his father to him. He will be delighted to save you today and begin the process of doing such things 
a good and beautiful work in you that it will leave him celebrating you in the presence of his father and will leave you forever celebrating and glorifying him. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such a shallow effort of a sermon compared to the ocean depths of all that is in these verses. I am mindful of this. And yet, I pray, Lord, that I have said nothing in this sermon that would get in the way of your people being nourished and fed by the depths of what is here. And if you have used anything that I have said to help to highlight any of those depths, then I will be eternally grateful. Lord Jesus, you are a savior beyond compare. You are infinitely good and loving and wise and honest and truthful. You're everything that we need. And as beautiful and perfect and good as you are, it's an astounding thing that you would love sinners such as we are. And upon setting your love upon us, that you would not abandon us in our moments of sin. These disciples, even after this amazing prayer with the words that they've just heard, they're going to turn right around within the hour and royally mess up. And you will die on a cross for those very sins. And then Sunday will come and you will be raised. And Lord Jesus, you will make a beeline to them and appear to them and allow them to see you. And you will see them with eyes of forgiveness and love. And that undying love, undying forgiveness, undying commitment that you have for these men will forever change these men from the broken-hearted, guilt-ridden men that they will be into champions for you running the race in the joy of having their sins forgiven and in the joy of having a relationship with a Savior so wonderful as you. What is not to love about a Savior like this? Help us, Lord Jesus, to declare you from the mountaintops to all those whose paths we cross Help us to walk in the good of this love as your people, to mirror this very love in our relationships with one another, in our homes, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our care groups, as we engage with our imperfect fellow believers 
and seek to love them as you love them and as you have loved us in a way that is just like what you display in the passage we've looked at today. And may we thereby give glory to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,